difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to the Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with Keith Phipps and Tasha Robinson. Last week, we discussed The Warriors, Walter Hill's 1979 cult classic about the modern day gangs of New York. This week, we're returning again to the deadly streets of the Big Apple at night with John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum, the latest in a popular action series about a retired assassin who's caught in an endless cycle of killing and revenge. When we last left Keanu Reeves' John Wick in the second chapter, he had orchestrated a killing in the Continental Hotel. As operated by Ian McShane's Winston and Lance Reddick's Concierge, the Continental is supposed to be a haven for assassins like himself, a place where they can set aside their differences and recuperate in peace. In other words, it's a safe space for these snowflakes. Now that Wick has violated this cardinal rule, the ruling body of the underworld, called the High Table, has sent an adjudicator, played by Asia Kate Dillon from Billions, to hold Winston and Wick to account. The solution for Wick is to put a $14 million bounty on his head and basically declare open seasons for any group of assassins who wants to try to take the notorious Baba Yaga down. For Wick, that means squaring off against wave after wave of gangs, some with knives, some with motorcycles, and even some on horseback. We'll talk about how he fares and John Wick's place in the action pantheon after the break. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Mr. Wick broke the rules. I trust you understand the repercussions if he survives. John Wick, excommunicado, is now in effect. You shouldn't be here. Nice suit. Good to see you too. I need your help. After this, we are less than even. There's no escape for you. The high table wants your life. Would you help set the mood for our new guest? Let us begin. Our service is still off limits to me. What do you need? Guns. Lots of guns. You think you can take John Wick? You've got a nasty surprise coming. So what do you think? These John Wick movies have been all about giving you more, with each, giving you a lot with the first John Wick, and then giving you more and more, and now we've got this 132-minute pile of mayhem. Uh, how did it play for you? I think part of my one of my favorite parts 
of this film is an offhand reference that everything has taken place in over the course of two days. I mean, that's, that's before the whole trip to Casablanca and back, but even then a lot, even at that point in the movie, a lot has gone down. Uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed, I enjoyed all these movies uh, a lot. I mean, if you want to get granular with it, I think the only, my only real problem with this, with this movie is I think the, the first act is great. The second act is very good. And the third act is also very good, but to a slightly lesser degree, um, you know, there's a little little bit of diminishing returns within this film, but um, that's because the first act is so good. I mean, it's one amazing fight scene yeah. after another. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm pro John Wick chapter three. What about you, Tasha? I like this one a lot better than the second one. Um, I mean, the first one was just such a such a little standout of a film, such a, a, like an unexpected gem in a very, very crowded genre. Uh, there's so many films that follow this exact same dynamic. And boy, we went through quite the list of uh, films that <laughs> might pair with it, including mm-hmm. uh, Point Blank and Hard Boiled, I think being our, our primary ones, because everything else is uh, sort of iterations on that, up to and including terrible movies like, oh, I don't know, Hitman, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the idea of the, the ruthless killer that somehow falls afoul of an organization and now everybody's trying to ruthlessly kill him is just such a very specific fantasy that we see so often in cinema. But the first one did so much with it in terms of style, in terms of fight design, in terms of, I'm really surprised I'm going to say these words in this order, Keanu Reeves' physical presence. Mm -hmm. And then for me, movie two was just like, and then Keanu Reeves shoots 3,000 people in the head. It just, <laughs> it lost so much of its verve for me. In the first film, we get just the the slightest little tidbits of the assassin underground. And then in the second film, it's like, yeah, that's the part people care about. Let's go all in on explaining that. Mm. I wrote a piece for The Dissolve once about how horror sequels are the worst because they try to explain everything that was mysterious in the first film in order to have something to talk about in between more scares. And explanation is the death of horror. I think explanation might also be the death of like mystery and, and action, because the second one for me just explained everything. Here, I felt like we were back to much more creatively staged action sequences and by making the the big picture like bigger and bigger with this whole the high table and the adjudicators and uh, like the the Russian mob that isn't part of the high table organization but have their own thing and have to cooperate with it like all of these different elements to me made the world kind of mysterious again in an interesting way. I do still think it's got one or two too many fight sequences and that they just they get kind of exhausting and samey. I'm having a really hard time believing that literally the world can still keep coming up with gangs of people that think they can take down John Wick who has killed 800 people in those two days. But that said, I overall, I enjoyed this and I, I really do think it's a marked step up from movie two. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I, I really like the second one too. I like all of these movies, but this one is, it's big and it's got a lot of really distinct and exciting action sequences in it to echo what Keith said. A lot of my favorite stuff in the movie is is in that first third, and I think that there's an element where you do get exhausted at, as long as this film is. It's way too long in 130 minutes because it's just not because there's a lack of creativity on part of the filmmakers or that the sequences themselves are not impressive, but just because that's it's just too much, and, and you just kind of wish that the director Chad Stahelski had kind of just left a bullet or two in the chamber uh, for the next John Wick and, and maybe just exercise some of those ideas there and made this one a little bit more concise because it just, it's just a lot to take in at once. And especially since I, you know, the simpler things in the movie I like 
the most. I mean, I like that first fight with uh, Boban Mar- Marjanovic, uh, <laughs> the sa- the backup center for the uh, Philadelphia 76ers. It was really fun to see a guy that huge take on John Wick in a one-on-one conflict. And then the knife sequence is my favorite of any sequence I've seen in any of the John Wick movies. I think that is so brutal and exciting and it was so much fun seeing it with an audience that was just losing their minds at just the, br- <laughs> the the sheer brutality and creativity of it but, the, but the scott whole, don't don't you hate cinematic violence oh, it's my favorite throwing uh, pulling a knife out of your own body and then throwing it at somebody <laughs> else <that's> so inspired <laughs> uh, uh yeah that is that's one of my favorites too i i remember thinking during that scene that uh, like target rich environments are a very common thing in fight movies but this felt like the first time I'd seen a knife-rich environment. And just the fact that everybody's just gathered, like there are 40 knives on the wall behind me, I'm going to put all of them in somebody one at a time, and you're going to hear the thunk of every single one of them going home. And and people turning into pin cushions and continuing to fight. It's it's ludicrous and and really kind of horrible, yeah. but still kind oh, of fun so, to watch. So, yeah, the impact is so heavy one thing too i appreciate and this is why i i regret us not being able to do hard but we really wanted to do hard boiled with this but it's not it's available to anywhere it's really hard like, to find even, even the blu-rays repeated to not be a very watchable copy of, of yeah you know, i mean so. the criterion did a, did a version which i think i still have yeah but it's uh, not even it's not even anamorphic not yeah just, no, like, i know you're not gonna, it, you're not gonna enjoy watching you need to, it you need to spruce this thing up because hard boiled is such a good movie but like but one of the things I really like about John Wick, beyond you know that Mission Impossible factor of there being real stunts and practical effects and those things you don't really get that much in the CGI era, is the fact that it has that Hong Kong aesthetic of, of uh, balletic violence and emphasis on choreography and, and beautiful imagery. And also this thing where you get sequels. The sequels are all about going further and further and doing more and more you know if you watch like the god of gamblers movie but <laughs> movies for example you get the god of gamblers three and it's like holy crap or you watch you know super cop or whatever police story three is that police story three is super cop yeah yeah and like that one is you've got uh him jumping on a train with a motorcycle it's just like that's the challenge they set them for themselves each movie becomes this bar that the next movie has to get over and and uh it's kind of nice to see an american series continue that way of thinking and bring it into our current century because nobody's doing it man the god of gamblers movies there's a reference i wasn't expecting oh i watched those movies like crazy like I when i was the first one are the sequels good oh yeah oh okay. yeah 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 a lot freaking that was another thing about hong kong cinema is oftentimes the the sequels were stronger than the original films because they were doing more and, and yeah. uh, they're successful they had more money they had and they had that that initiative to kind yeah. of do do more we gotta find a way to do a uh, hard-boiled at some point when, it, when it's available yeah. like well, as long as we're doing like a mini like next picture show within the next picture show mm-hmm. podcast within the podcast one that one point of comparison i is the way that film and this film kind of turned the sound of weapons into like vocals you know like almost like vocals for the characters in a way like like you know each gun has its own distinctive 
uh, blammo noise or whatever, and and becomes like sort of another way of the, the character expressing themselves. It's I don't know. It's 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 good stuff. How um, how do you, as a soft hearted dog lover, uh, deal with the extended action sequence with dogs as weapons? Um, I mean, you know, I, I just assure myself that the actual dogs were were uh, well cared for. Um, but, no uh, dogs were harmed in the making. Of the I have, film. I have Forty-seven stunt people were were terribly injured. But uh, no, it's it's fine. You know, so I'm assuming I would just. Take a leap of faith that the dogs were safely cared for. Actually, I think the most upsetting scene in the movie is the beginning when he's walking through Times Square with his dog with no leash on it. Well, he's also walking down the center of the street, which uh, they, but we're, we're going to get into connections in a minute, but I'm just going to cheat by throwing out a connection that apparently both the Warriors and John Wick think the best way to hide from your enemies is to run down the center of the street. Yeah, what well, the hell? Uh, it's, it's great for cinema. It's great for cinematography. Not so great for hiding. One thing I will, I really, you know, don't love the whole extra textual thing, but I really recommend that you listen to Sean Fennessy's podcast, uh, The Big Picture, which has a interview with Chad Stahelski that's quite extensive and gets into um, the making of this movie and just the months and months of preparation for all these stunts scenes. But with regard to the dogs, the attack dogs, like the big problem with that, sequences that actually training dogs to attack it makes them immediately um disqualifies them for future use as dogs that you can use in movies disqualifies them also for dogs that you can place with families like like they had to secure a commitment from people within this stunt community to take these dogs and provide a home for these dogs in order to use them the way they did in this hmm. movie to make them actually because you know you can train a dog to jump on you but the dog is just going to jump on you and like lick you or something to actually train them to be as aggressive as they are in John Wick 3 is a whole another matter so it really gets into that kind of detail and and uh Chad Stahelski just generally is a very intense individual who is um really committed to the job I mean he's, he's talks about he talks about Keanu Reeves and Halle Berry having to work for like five or six months uh, doing full on like dress rehearsal versions of their action sequences, you know, which he likened uh, to like literally staging a ballet, like mm. that kind of level of detail. And you, and it just pays off. I mean, they're really, other than the Mission Impossible movies, nothing quite like these John Wick films out, out there. And it's it's kind of, it's so encouraging to see audiences respond so well to them yeah those dog sequences in particular i mean you, you see a lot of dog action in movies and read about it and it's it's <laughs> i can't tell you how many uh directors or animal trainers i've read about talking about uh how you can get a dog to do pretty much anything if you plant enough bacon on the actor <laughs> uh but you know you you watch something like cujo is maybe a, a rare standout where the dog is actually menacing but so often you can tell that a dog in a sequence is uh barking and wagging its tail because the trainer's egging it on and then they're just like sweetening it to make the the sound of the dog menacing when it's not or a dog's charging at somebody and clearly they cut right before the face licking started <laughs> like yeah. here the flying bodies like the choreography oh, yeah. of, of the dogs like leaping through the air and like grabbing somebody by the arm and then using their the entire weight of their flying bodies to like torque somebody around and take him down like those are some seriously like cool stunts <laughs> Yeah. yeah, your arm. Look, grab your arm if you're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I, I wanted to mention too, because we, we did talk about maybe the last third of the movie, a certain amount of exhaustion setting in. I mean, I, though I did like it. I mean, I do think that, that setting therein 
which is almost it's not like a hall of mirrors but it has that kind of effect where you don't know where people are and you're seeing a lot of reflections and and uh you know you get <laughs> you get john wick just thrown into pane of glass after pane of glass after pane of glass i really love uh mark dacosco's performance as as zero the because mm-hmm. uh, i think because there's you just get this giddy admiration on his part for John Wick that just takes that confrontation to another fun level of just like of the two of them getting in situations where they're going at each other and then there's a pause and it's just like it's like this is this guy who's trying to kill John Wick is also just so thrilled it's to be in this fan, yeah. to be in this moment and having this much fun and I was also really happy to see Asia Kate dylan as the adjudicator i I think they they're they they're non-binary non-binary it's a performance that that they give in billions it's similar to it i don't know if you've seen i haven't seen billions yet yeah yeah um just but they're very they're just magnetic in this movie totally just totally calculating and cold and sharp and it's just there's it's, it's a wonderful piece of casting yeah the whole theme of john wick having fanboys who are just really eager to fight him based on reputation is kind of a fun spin on the genre my only argument there is that the fight with zero seemed maybe a little redundant with the really extensive fight that came before it mm-hmm. uh with yayan ruhan and uh his partner who were both discredited as shinobi uh, but they come across <laughs> As, as like brothers possibly who just really kind of have each other's backs and are really excited to get to fight John Wick together yeah. and they're they're like an inch off from asking him for his autograph the entire time <laughs> and their fight with him is really dynamic and I like it a lot but the whole dynamic ends up being the exact same thing that happens with Zero yeah. immediately afterwards. So I wish that didn't come across as quite so redundant. But I think it's really interesting that uh, their fight with him in particular, like they have a chance to kill him and they don't because they're enjoying it and they want the fight to go on. Like there is a sort of feeling of this going into an, incre- an increasingly meta place where everybody just kind of admires him and like kind of wants to be him and kind of wants to be the person who takes him down. But also just in a very meta way is appreciating the combat choreography as much as the audience is. Yeah. My only, my only complaint, big complaint with this movie is there's not enough. Jason Mantzuka says TikTok man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just thought when those, when those promo TikTok, posters, Mr. Wick. when those pick posters came out and yeah, he's right at the beginning of the movie. It's like, yes, this this is going to be incredible. So but hopefully, hope, setups but, there for him to be in the fourth the, one. The setup is the setup is he, there. He cut off like eighty pounds of hair for that role, and then he's barely <laughs> on screen. That's <laughs> uh, anything, anything for a part. But there's plenty more to talk about with John Wick, and we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between John Wick three and the Warriors. You do realize that I'm management now, right? I'm not service anymore, John, so I don't go around shooting people in the head. I'm not asking you to kill anyone. I just need you to get me to him. To who? Your old boss. You want to kill Barada? I'm not going to kill him. I just need to talk. What could he possibly give to you? Guidance. I made a deal when I agreed to run this hotel, and that deal said that I had to follow the rules of the table. 
If you're not gonna kill him, he is gonna kill you. And then probably me too for walking you up in there. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. They have some things in common. One is <laughs> one is one is New York at night. Uh, John Wick, really, this is pertinent really to the first third of the of the film, but both films have their own kind of stylized ideas of what New York is like, and and both they certainly they take place. They're shot forty years apart, and so the city is going to look a whole, whole lot different. So so give me an impression of how these movies treat the city. Well, I think according to John Wick is it works because it finds these ungentrified spaces or these spaces that aren't just, you know, have been taken over by, you know, the corporate entities or, or, or what have you. I mean, New York Public Library is one, but also there's sort of this attic-y, warehouse space where they had the big knife fight. Mm-hmm. There's the stable with the horses, like, you know, oh. which, you know, you know, New York has to have them, but it's not something you think of as, re- as a regular New York feature. Uh, and then there's, the, of course, the, the theater with, with uh, Angelica Houston's ballet company. I, I, I'm making the air quotes, but it's not really that, that, that appropriate because they do do ballet. They just do other stuff, too. Um, and just sort of these areas in New York that just haven't been touched by, by the Dwayne Reedism of it and uh i think that's really part of why it works and and warriors there's there was more of that left so it's easier to find it and film film there and, and the subway tunnels were a little more run down looking uh new york in 79 is is different from from new york now although i haven't been in a few years but I, but i don't don't remember everything being tagged with graffiti the last time i was there I honestly did not realize in John Wick that there was any intention of going to actual Casablanca. When <laughs> when we say we're going to Casablanca and then like we're walking through a brightly colored tunnel and they're just a bunch of the exact same more thugs uh, ready to ambush him. I was like, oh, so they, they met some secret assassin underground neighborhood area called Casablanca. And it really wasn't until he started walking through the desert that I was like, We've probably left New York. I, I think. I mean, you know, this this is a New York of, of many like sub societies, but I'm pretty sure they don't have an entire Saharan desert anywhere in Manhattan. But that said, uh, yeah, it's it's a very it's a very striated city in both films. You know, there is that attitude of as you move from borough to borough, you're moving from small society to small society. That said, uh, really early on in John Wick 3, there's a moment where it's pouring down rain and he just puts up his arm and a cab immediately pulls over, uh, despite the fact that he's like bathtub levels of wet and he has a soaking wet dog. Somehow New York City provides a cab for him but, and, a, uh-huh. and a cabbie that doesn't mind. Well, the cabbie knew who he was, though. We find uh, out. Oh, that's right. He did. That's yeah. right. He did find that. I was expecting the joke like, you know, don't let this you know wet dog in my cab. But Every, uh, Everyone knows who John Wick is. Apparently. Yeah, but that is a reason to not let him into your cab with his wet dog. That is not a reason to I mean, I, you know you're getting a gold coin out of it because yeah. everything in this uh, <laughs> society costs a gold coin. Like, wow. But yeah, when there was immediately an empty cab available for him that didn't mind his wet dog, I was like, oh yeah, this is a fantasy New York. <laughs> I don't I don't need to worry about the reality of anything that happens after this because this movie has just declared itself to be an utter fantasy. Well, this is an interesting contrast to me between what Keith mentions as the, these non-gentrified areas of New York, which which I think fit with... The fact that this is an underworld, right? I mean, this is supposed to be a a secret society, or so all this, all this, all of this action that's happening between the assassins and and what goes on at the Continental. I mean, all of this is happening underneath ordinary life of the city, and, and no one know, knows what's going on. And so, of course, we're going to be 
in these obscure corners of city that these assassins can sort of operate in. But I, but I also appreciated how there are a couple moments in the film where where you're where you surface in the most populated areas of New York. There's Times Square, and then there's um, Grand Central, right? And you get that absurd moment where they're in pursuit, uh, which doesn't seem to bother anyone in that typical New York fashion. But then you have this kind of line of children that sort of crosses in between them and creates this kind of fun comic tension and also just lets us know that hell wait a minute we're we're out of this underworld now we're now in in mainstream society and it's just kind of striking in that respect it, what it reminded me of was like my favorite my single favorite moment in death proof the tarantino film where they they have that great chase sequence and suddenly you go from the back roads into this just you know, ordinary like freeway where there's like minivans and this kind of thing. And you just suddenly feel like you've been transported like a, almost like in a time machine from a, this retro, you know, 60s and 70s, you know, gearhead movie into, you know, the, the present day with mom and dad and the kids in their car with a car with the, that's being interrupted by this chase. And so I think you kind of get that nice comic spark in um, John Wick 3 as well. You also, in both places, New York is a, a place, <laughs> a place where you fly your colors. I'm thinking of the bus full of skinheads in the Warriors uh, that's slowly cruising around under the tracks, like looking for, for the Warriors, versus the many gangs in John Wick that also kind of like all look alike and all thematically, you know, here's here's the Krav Maga fighting group. Here's the Pensac Slot team. Uh, you know, here's the, the group that flo- throws knives. <laughs> and here's the group with this kind of gun. Like there is, there is a sense of unity uh, to every group of thugs. Like all the Russians look and fight the same way. All of the Zero's people are all ninjas with katanas, uh, some of whom use actual ninja stealth, and it's kind of awesome. There's that unity of theme uh, among the gangs of New York in both uh, films, and I feel like both films use it to comic advantage. Maybe the Warriors a little more, both because the gangs are more outlandish and ridiculous and specific, and because the John Wick gangs are meaning to be like much more dangerous and, and threatening and lethal. But there's still just that idea. If either way, if you want to be in a New York gang, like you got to have a theme. You got to fight a certain way, dress in a certain way, act in a certain way, and maybe not talk much. <laughs> Well, one, one, another theme I wanted to bring up, and this is co- common to a lot of action movies about the criminal kind, is is honor among thieves, because that is something that is a true binding force in both the Warriors and in John Wick Three, in terms of allowing us to determine which of the bad guys are not actually bad. You know, like which of these gang members or assassins are are operating by a code that is more respectable than the scoundrels who are, you know, disposing of that code. Well, prove me wrong here. Okay. John Wick, the high table, what happened is the riffs, the Grand Mercy riffs <laughs> and all the other gangs and the warriors, they got it together, they formed the high table, they grew up, and that they're, they're the high table now. And then, uh, I guess it's a much older society, though, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, yeah. But it is kind of the same thing going on in, in, in some ways. But uh, It's interesting, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, like it, it, the high table is as if the Cyrus's plan came to fruition. Right, yeah. Well, though, I, you also, I think, but more, more explored in John Wick, too. Though I think it's, it's, it goes back 
quite a ways. Yeah. Um, hence the centuries of tradition and, and so on. But they, they are going to different ends here, though, as well. Cyrus's big plan is to unite them to kind of push back against the man and, and, and have their way criminally. Whereas I think the high table, the John Wick movies ask us to accept a world in which assassins and assassinations are just not only kind of accept it with a little bit of a nod, but also a very big business, you know, that can sustain itself. I'm not sure it's plausible. I, you know, I, I don't like these John Wick movies anymore. <laughs> yeah. I, I will go back to the magic New York in the rain taxi cab. If you look at it both that way, the, the, the Warriors is a little earthier and a little more, um, you know, grounded in, in something like reality. Or at least at least commenting on reality sure. in some way. Yeah. Whereas John Wick, the John Wick movies have, I think, very little relationship to the world in which we live. Yeah, there's an interesting, I mean, aspect to the way, like, the, the Cyrus's big plan and the Warriors comes down to there are more of us than there are of them. Like, mm. we could run this place. That seems kind of plausible in that they do outnumber the cops you know there are more like feckless youth wanting something to do with their lives than there are police in new york city but with john wick it it's what makes the whole thing feel sort of ridiculous like in the first film you get the sense that the continental is maybe where every high-end assassin in the world is currently hanging and chilling uh by john wick three it's like no we outnumber them. There are more high-end assassins in the world than there are civilians. Like I don't, I don't know who there is for them to assassinate anymore, except each other. I mean, the fact that John Wick's like killed eight hundred of them is maybe going to make like job security a little better for mm-hmm. the the people who are left. Uh, but yeah, the the question of scale in the warriors seems very important and potentially realistic. And the more we learn about it in John Wick, the more silly it gets. Yeah, though I mean, if we if we do reflect on this on this honor among thieves theme, it becomes relevant with Ian McShane's character with Winston, and and to some extent also with Lance Reddick's concierge as well. I mean, these these are guys who run this hotel. They are underneath the direction of of, of the high table. Uh, they they are enforcers of this rule, this cardinal rule that that John Wick has broken, and yet. They also recognize that what he's been doing, what he's had to do, was perhaps a necessary and honorable thing, and and they can't necessarily bring themselves to cast him out in a way that they would a, a true bad actor, and so and so that kind of then creates this alliance between Winston and John Wick heading into the third act against the high table because they they both been kind of scapegoated and and they both need each other. And they both go about their business in a, in a way, you know, even if it's a dirty business, they both go about their business in a an honorable way. And, and that's what kind of makes them heroic in, in a way. There's certainly the sense that there are in both these movies, the rules. And for the most part, people live by them. Like the fact that uh, it's pretty exceptional, seemingly, that John Wick gets uh, excommunicated, you know, because people pay attention to the rules of the continental. Like they want to live in a civilized society. And in the same kind of way, it's pretty exceptional the degree to which everybody in the Warriors does obey the rules and, and show up unarmed and like actually ready to listen to Cyrus and, and ready to potentially make peace. I feel like that whole plan probably wouldn't have lasted long just because of like local tensions between people it's kind of like walking to the middle east and say saying hey how about we all just get along here 
But that said, Luther seems to be the only person that did actually come with a weapon. And again, it's because he's an agent of chaos. It's mm-hmm. because he recognizes no rules. He he does what he wants yeah, to he do. Has no, he, has, he, has, he has no honor, so he's our villain. So, you know, John Wick is pushed to act outside the rules, uh, but still sort of has his own uh, sense of honor that we're asked to sympathize with. Mm-hmm. Um, in The Warriors, you know, honor is basically just having your having your brother's back. Because the the chaos agents are the ones that are coming for you. There's another connection, Tasha, that you brought up that we should explore too. Uh, we talked about in the Warriors, you know, this certain sensitivity and vulnerability to this gang from Coney Island, and how it's really even reflected in the way they dress. Uh, but then on the other side of that. With John Wick, you have someone who is who is indomitable and un, and unbeatable and and powerful. Um, you know that juxtaposition is interesting and it's present in both movies. I think that it's in in both movies, and I think this is a, a pretty standard thing for action movies that actually care about you empathizing with the protagonist. Uh, both of these movies kind of take the time to let you see what the what these men are like outside combat and to show them as vulnerable. Like as I said, it it kind of comes out in the way the warriors dress but there's also you spend time like alone with swan in particular when he feels like he's he's potentially lost his men you feel it in the warriors during the sequence with the lizzie's when when one member of the group i think it's rembrandt but i I had a little difficulty telling them apart at times but but one of them like realizes that they're vulnerable realizes that they're being baited and that they they shouldn't stay and is trying to get them out like John Wick. You know, I, you know why? The, the chicks are packed. Because it's a trap. Because the chicks are <laughs> packed. I often have a lot of problem with uh, Keanu Reeves as an actor. I, I think he's very, very stiff. And his mm. line delivery is often mm. pretty ludicrous. Mm, yeah, but he has yeah. the most vulnerable eyes. And so many films have just gotten so much mileage out of just him looking up into the camera uh, during a moment of vulnerability. And I think here you see it most when he's trying to appeal to Angelica Houston, when he's trying to say, like, you know, my life is on the line and and I came here the way you're supposed to. I, I followed the rules. I've got my marker. You have to respect this. There's just scene after scene of him basically doing exhausted puppy eyes at her. Yeah, I, I like Reeves a lot, and I've come to like him a lot more over the years, <laughs> but I think you do, but I think you lock onto one thing that really works with him is, is, is in, in this film and in others, but, it, but it's sort of this look of, I'd really rather not be doing this. <laughs> this, is, this is not where I want it, my life to be. Uh, you know, here, point break, what have you. It's sort of this, this I, I'm regretting this thing even as I'm doing it uh, expression um, that, uh, that really works for him. Yeah, and you get that from from both teams, you know, both him and the the Warriors here. It's, there's just this endless sense of like, this isn't what we wanted. This isn't what we want to be doing. We have to be strong in order to survive this, but we really don't necessarily want to. We, we just want to go home. And uh, he really comes across as a man who really just wants to like, like lie down and pet his new dog and be left alone <laughs> and is not going to get that. Uh, you know, the warriors finally do get their backs to the sea and you get to see like what they're like at home. And it's just, they're so much more relaxed. They're, they're where they should be and they're, they're comfortable and they're not afraid anymore. There is, there is nothing like that for John Wick. And based on where this film ends, there may not be for another six films. However, (laughs) however long people are willing to go and watch these. Well, and, and there's also this kind of idea that maybe he deserves it. He may, he may not deserve to have any peace that that he's committed enough 
uh, enough sins and 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 blown <laughs> put enough bullets in people's heads that that may that maybe he deserves to be hunted and tormented for the rest of his life you know searching for this tiny little shred of redemption but Keanu Reeves it's just I mean he I remember really early in his career he had a, a supporting role in Permanent Record do you ever see Permanent Record no I just remember there being one really super emotional moment in per- Permanent Record which is not really that memorable film. Where I think where I think there's some sort of an accident or a car accident, and he he sort of jumps out of the car and and to see if someone's okay or something. I can't remember what happened, but I just remember like crying, <laughs> like as a teenager, just being instantly moved by this film that really wasn't doing a lot for me, and it was all Keanu. And so I kind of held have held on to that through some performances that are admittedly on the stiff side. He has an unusual acting style occasionally. I mean, very winning. I really do love him. But I think as an adult, there's something even like tragic and melancholy about about him that that is just so present in John Wick and and a lot of these interviews he's been doing around the around the movie particularly of course that moment on Stephen Colbert which did you see that that kind of circular viral moment when Colbert asked him what happens uh, to us after we die and uh, and uh, uh, you know of course he's he's lost so much in his life so many you know River Phoenix and then his you know, anyway, he has a very long history. I mean, it's a bit, he's led a, f- a fairly sad personal life, and his answer was something like, uh, "Is that, that all he knows is that the people we love will miss us?" And it was like, ugh, it was like an instantly. Just, it was such a powerful moment. I just think there's so much of that history that he brings into this part that makes him um, vulnerable and indomitable to go back to that theme of yours of of being someone who who uh, has obviously experienced a lot of tragedy and pain and, and but who is uh hardened and unbeatable uh by that experience too just like you know he's like a, this this ghost that just he's the baba yaga yeah i just feel like both of these film, films really fully embrace the idea that masculinity is fundamentally about uh, being a vulnerable person, but covering it up as much as possible in order to survive in the world and presenting a, a face of uh, confidence and strength and ability to survive anything and ability to repress any any emotion uh, that might get in the way of that. But if you're still human under it all, it still leaks out at, at times and in interesting ways. And I think both of these films like play with that that masculinity dynamic in interesting and uh, pretty empathetic ways. Snowflakes, as I said. <laughs> uh, so The Warriors is available on DVD and Blu-ray and can be rented on all the usual digital rental sites. And it's currently on Stars. John Wick 3 is currently in theaters. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith. What in the film world has been good for you lately? So I was doing kind of a survey of depictions of radiation and radiation poisoning and, and, and film and television for an article I'm writing for, for someone at this table. And I, I was gave me a chance to catch up with some films I'd never seen before. And one of them was On the Beach, which is Stanley K. Kramer's 1959 adaptation of Neville Schutt's novel about uh, what happens in Australia when basically the rest of the world blows itself up in a nuclear war. And what happens is, is sort of like this 
sad, slow resignation that pretty soon they'll be dead too. Um, the whole film has kind of this sustained melancholy tone to it. And it's got these great performances and sort of the, of all these people looking at death and looking at death that they weren't expecting and looking at death as something that's not coming tomorrow, but could come the day after tomorrow or the day after that. And the cast includes Gregory Peck, Ava Gardner, Fred Astaire. Um, I thought that to me, the most chilling scenes belong to um, a couple played by Anthony Perkins and Donna Anderson as a young married couple. Um, and like most of the cast, Gregory Peck's playing American. Um, most of the cast is not even trying to do Australian <laughs> accents and Anthony Perkins and Donna Anderson among them. But they're a young couple with, with an infant and they have to consider suicide pills, basically, which is what we're going to be handed out to the whole population and administering it to themselves and to their infant daughter. And it's just the most awful thing to think about. And uh, I think the film really captures that as well. I, I'd never seen this before. I, I liked, I'd read the book years ago. I, I like it quite a bit. And it's, um, you know, Stanley Kramer is not necessarily a director you think of in terms of being really exciting visually, but he's working uh, here with Giuseppe Rotuno, the cinematographer who did a lot of Fellini movies, did some Visconti movies. So uh, uh, someone kind of, you know, definitely knew what he was doing behind the camera. I, I'd recommend it. And I had a hard time tracking it down. I think I ended up watching a version on YouTube. Don't tell anyone. But definitely a film that's uh, worth your time. Yeah, I mean, and, and Stanley Kramer is a director I've always had negative associations with as being this director of sort of clumsy social mm-hmm. dramas, you know, often really long and and this seems like a little bit of a subtler work from him. Yeah. I and mean, the closing shot is as unsubtle as it gets, but he's got really great material here too. And a lot of it is just kind of letting uh, the city of Melbourne, which is, you know, the, what, what's happened is, has led to gas shortages. So everyone just kind of in, in horses and carriages and, and, it's just sort of this sense of, well, we should make the best of the time we've got left. And um, that is, you know, definitely more a pronounced feeling to the film beyond like sort of like we must we must prevent this from happening. That kind of comes in, you know, the subtext that becomes glaringly text by the this end. This could be us. But, we must prevent. This. Right. Exactly. But uh, but um, but, you know, I, I, it's really worth your time. The performance, the cast is so great. You, you know, you're not going to find a better cast than that. Right. The the name that really stands out for me in the cast is Fred Astaire. Fred Astaire in a dramatic role, uh, no dancing at all. Uh, Billion was sort of this this. Uh, he and Ava Gardner have been, uh, they had been, I forget, married or, or just a couple, but they were basically people who are dealing with this by uh, drinking as much as possible. But he kind of channels his despair into an enthusiasm for race cars. And it's got a really great racing sequence with all these um, sort of late 50, well, this 50s models, uh, sports cars. And and, um, and that's all, you know, apart from some uh, rear projection and process shots that are really obvious when you see Fred Astaire behind the wheel. But, but the actual driving sequences are obviously... Uh, not simulated and quite impressive and really dangerous looking as well. So it's on the beach from 1959. Scott, how about you? Well, I finally caught up with Gloria Bell, which was, I guess, a pretty significant indie favorite from earlier in the year. This is from Chilean director Sebastian Lelio, whose last name I might be mangling. Uh, This is a remake of his 2013 drama Gloria, which I had seen. That was a, a Spanish language film. This is an English language film. Story is very close. I mean, there's a lot of really subtle 
differences and improvements in my opinion in this movie but the real reason to make this movie is julianne moore who is the lead um she plays a lonely 50 something divorcee who likes to go out dancing by herself in los angeles clubs uh, or at least, uh, the clubs for some reason are always playing uh, you know 70s and 80s love ballads and an up-tempo adult contemporary so there's a ton of like you know, there's Bonnie Tyler and Air Supply and solo Paul McCartney and some Earth, Wind & Fire songs and that, that kind of thing. And the soundtrack is really a lot of fun. But the film ends up being about her relationship with another divorcee, somebody who's a new bachelor played beautifully by John Turturro, who's just, you know, when you're that age and you have you have adult kids and you've had so much history and so much baggage that you bring to the table, it just makes... It makes the relationship both extremely exciting to to find someone in you know in sort of late middle age uh, that that you can have this really passionate relationship with, but also there's so much compromise and so much baggage and so much trouble that imposes itself on this relationship as well. You know, it's just a wonderful character piece. This movie, all of you know, up and down the cast, um, you know, you really feel like these characters have been thoroughly thought through. Um, you learn things about them but you also think like there's a lot more to learn about them it's just it's a very um satisfying uh, movie and it's just it's just one that gives julianne more the chance to just flex every possible muscle which for her it, you know i mean she's one of the best so uh, i really recommend it it's a lot of fun i mean it makes like one little misstep toward the end that i maybe might nitpick but other than that i think it's pretty terrific so uh, did, he, did he, either of you see Gloria? No, Bell? I need to. Those yeah, I saw I saw Gloria, which I remember as one of those slow burn films that initially I couldn't quite figure out why why it was and mm-hmm. why I was watching it, and it just like the slow progression of it uh, sold me on it <laughs> like on a logarithmic scale. I just I I kept getting more and more excited uh, just by the the depth of the characterization and the the slow burn feeling of joy that came from that movie. I'm, I'm curious whether Gloria he's, Bell captures that. He, this director is good. He did uh, a fantastic woman that as I well. Saw. He's got a lot of uh, a lot of talent. So uh, um, which is another slow burn movie that with that kind of that same kind of feel of yeah. uh, narrative inevitability, like the weight of the narrative building up slowly behind the main character. Yeah, yeah. He did disobedience even more recently than that. So he, he, he like he tends to focus on women and painful dramas about women. Yeah, exactly. So so this is good. I mean, it's not that, and it's not that painful, really. It's it has some tough moments, but it, but there's a there's a whole range of emotion you have experiencing it, and, and one of those is, is real pleasure and joy. So, um, I recommend it. What about you, Tasha? Uh, I was I haven't seen anything that I haven't either written about or that I couldn't recommend in a little while. So I thought maybe I should look for a Keanu Reeves connection. What what's a Keanu Reeves movie that everybody <laughs> hasn't already seen a thousand times? Uh, and I immediately came up with Marty Noxon's To the Bone, which is streaming on Netflix. I saw this at some film festival or the other. They all blur at this point, and uh, Netflix picked it up pretty quickly afterwards. Uh, I believe it's Marty Noxon's uh, directorial debut. Mm-hmm. She also wrote it uh, based on her own experiences with anorexia. And it's a pretty harrowing, very very intimate, very lived-in feeling uh, story about a young woman played by Lily Collins uh, who is struggling with anorexia, who's struggling with 
uh, I think her fifth group home um, after being kicked out of the others uh, because she can't follow the rules. She can't, she's not that interested in fighting her addiction or she is at times and isn't at times. And Keanu Reeves plays this unconventional uh, therapist that she's sent to um, that just kind of has a, a very Keanu Reeves attitude uh, towards the whole thing. He's, he's unconventional and kind of playful in a way that I like to see Keanu Reeves doing. I, I still feel like some of his most natural, like unforced uh, acting ever was in the Bill and Ted movies. Mm. And he doesn't go full goofball here, but there is like some of that like lack of, of self-serious uh, weighty gravitas. Well, he's not the usual type of doctor for this thing. He's, yeah, he's, exactly. He has his own kind of like hippy dippy system that, that were of, of sending him to this site, right? This mm-hmm. house outside of, uh, uh, you know, it's, you're not institutionalized. He's got a different way of doing things. Yeah, and Keanu Reeves, I think, has often been at his best in either vehicles that require him to show no emotion, like The Matrix, or uh, films that let that give him a very small, very specific part, like The Gift, uh, that just let him do something really unconventional and have fun with it. I liked him a lot here, but also the movie around him similarly feels very unconventional. It's not your usual addiction narrative. It doesn't have the usual uh, rise and fall to it. There are some extremely unusual choices. Uh, I'm thinking about the therapy that she ends up in with her mother, uh, hmm. played by Lily Taylor, I believe. Yeah. And her friendship with a character played by Alex Sharp, who when that first started up, I, I kind of thought, okay, we're going in a very A Fault in Our Stars direction with this here. And uh, the film surprised me. Uh, I think... I just love films that surprise me. Mm-hmm. And this film is unconventional in so many different ways. I think because Noxon is more interested in reflecting the diversity of the anorexic experience and her personal experience than she is in telling a very conventional story. It's sad in a lot of ways. It's uh, really darkly funny in a yeah. lot of ways. Um, but I, I really enjoyed it a lot. But that, that was one of the things that stood out for me when I saw it, I mean, Noxon, you know, she was a big, you know, a lot of writing on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She was involved in the first season of Unreal before it went completely off the rails. Um, she's a very talented writer, and, and I think the humor that she brings to the to the movie is so important because it is such a difficult subject, and it allows her to make it hard in the places where it needs to be, of just, like, of having these scenes where we're just a bunch of these characters just sitting down to eat dinner is just an utter torment and and uh you know it's it's such a it's such an interesting play thing to thing to witness because you know we, when we sit when we sit down for for dinner we don't think about it we just eat what's in front of us and it's it's a much more complicated situation every single time here so uh i like it too i think it's worth seeing and it's just sitting there on netflix <laughs> yeah it's uh in some ways it's a really ghastly film and in some ways it's a really beautifully directed film and uh keanu reeves doing something he doesn't normally do and clearly having fun with it so yeah, yeah to the bone on netflix totally awesome i'll throw out another uh keanu reeves supporting performance you would enjoy is uh it sounds like in a similar vein i haven't, I haven't seen to the bone yet but uh, uh thumb sucker he plays an orthodontist who uh, helps the lead character overcome thumb sucking or attempt to through some um, unconventional ways. And uh, he's uh, really great in that movie. Keanu Reeves as therapist. Who knew that that was like a through line? Well, that's it for this edition of the next picture show. Our next pair will come out June 11th and June 18th. Genevieve, what's coming up next? 
It's been a long road for the world's favorite city-smashing radioactive giant lizard, from the startlingly philosophical black-and-white 1954 Japanese movie Godzilla to the big, loud, glossy new Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Legendary Entertainment's Monsterverse franchise has reinvented Godzilla as an immense CGI behemoth who literally explodes with nuclear energy. It's a long way from his origins as a man in a rubber suit, stamping on miniature towns and spawning a thousand cinematic visual references in the process. But the new Godzilla contains a lot of direct references to the original, and it loops back to some of the original movie's themes, which weren't always respected in the seemingly infinite number of spin-offs, sequels, reboots, and remakes between 1954 and today. In our next episodes, we'll look back on the 1954 Ishiro Han film that started it all, and compare the first Godzilla with the most recent one, to see how Godzilla has evolved over more than 50 years of movies. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of The Warriors, John Wick 3, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith Phipps. Oh, you can find me all over the place. I'm I'm do stuff for Decider. I do stuff for Vulture. I do stuff for Mel. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's the Verge. Uh, I've written some things for them. Written some things for Polygon. I'm just I'm just all over the place these days. That's great. And are you also in one place, such as Twitter or oh, your you can find website? me on Twitter at kfips3000, and and I try to collect my clips at keithphipps.com. A little behind on that, but I'll get to it. Tasha, how about you? Uh, you can find me at theverge.com, where I am the film and TV editor. Occasionally write, though lately just trying to wrangle all the, all the other people who are writing. So much to write about right now. There's so much going on. I am on Twitter at Tosh Robinson, uh, tweeting mostly about those things these days because that is what my life looks like. Scott, what about you? <laughs> Tosh Robinson, very tired. <laughs> um, uh, I'm on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, you can find my work in the New York Times, uh, Washington Post, NPR, uh, Variety, I have uh, Vulture. I have. Uh, by the time this drops, you should be seeing a fairly substantial list of uh, HBO <laughs> comedies and dramas that I uh, did with Noel Murray. Uh, I'm sure I'm probably getting yelled at about it, but uh, that was that was fun to work on. So, uh, and I'm also the editor in chief of the Oscilloscope Musings blog. Genevieve Kosky, our producer, uh, has been here the whole time, quiet, quietly. <laughs> You can find her on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky, and she is the deputy TV editor for Vulture. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Actually, we just really want you to give us five stars and say nice things. Um, uh, every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keeps the show going. And also just talking to people about how much you like the show and, you know, just, you know. Tattoos. Tattoos. We're not above tattoos. Yeah. So uh, thanks, as always, to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Next time.